This is the Valarin Perspective. We explore working, leading, and finding value in an uncertain world. I'm Aaron Smith. I'm Benjamin Carsage. And I'm Chris Vaughn. Welcome. Let's do this. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Valarin Perspective. Uh, we are in part two of joining a team as a leader. Um, we might actually get into joining a team a little bit as a contributor too, and how to think about that towards the end. We'll see if we have the time. But uh, one thing we wanted to bookend the last podcast with before we get started with uh, part two here officially is uh, something that we actually forgot to talk about, which is super important and uh, has led to a lot of difficulty that we've run into joining teams and seeing other people join teams in the past, which is sort of aligning with the expectations above you, understanding who your manager is, what they need, how they see the world, what expectations exist for them, spending some time to absorb that information and getting aligned with them on that. Because it, we, we focused a lot of the last podcast on like, what are your principles as a leader? How do you think about the world? Like, you know, being true to that and going in and prioritizing the problems you see and all that. The reality is though, is if you're not on the same page with your manager, you could actually be doing all the right things and still end up in a fail state. And unfortunately I've seen this a lot actually, where I've seen some really, really smart leaders who are almost um, either just ignorant of what their manager's needs were or bullheaded about, you know, what they thought was the right thing. And um, you're not serving anybody if you end up in a conflict with your manager or a conflict with the leaders above you um, and, are, and are thus unable to actually solve the problems you see because, you know, you've created an adversarial relationship there, for example, or something like that. So. Yeah. Um, make sure to focus on on getting aligned with your manager and helping them understand and and making sure your manager benefits from the work that you're doing too. Um, I think is is really important. If you you know uh, the the reality is I think as a manager myself for many years when my people are out there um, adding value for me and themselves and their teams simultaneously it works for everybody. So I think yeah the the way that you relate to a manager is to me predicated on communication when you join a new space and it's a lot of communication with them. What are your expectations if you have any? And if you don't, let's talk about what they could be, what you're looking for, here's what I'm thinking. And then keeping that frame up to date. We talked last time about approach and framework and sort of being observational, doing a lot of listening. You're going to learn more and if you can bring that information back to your boss, your manager, uh, and help them understand this is what I'm seeing and this is how I'm approaching it, it goes a long way uh, towards helping, towards towards basically conscripting their help, uh, or at least their understanding of, of what you're doing, uh, versus a world where you go in and they basically just don't hear from you, or there was some initial expectation set, and then you know three months later you come out and you're like, okay, everything that we thought was going to happen actually isn't, um, and here's where we actually are. That's going to come as a shock to them, and you don't want that to be a shock to them. You want to be regularly talking to them about like, here's what I'm seeing. Um, and so like, yeah, take advantage of your one-on-ones there. Hey, these are the expectations we had. This is why I think they may need to change or what part of them are reasonable, which part of them uh, we may need to add to or subtract from or whatever. So like a lot of communication there is helpful. The outcome you're looking for, I think, is not just the alignment, but uh, a level of investment that your manager has in what you're doing so that they can advocate for exactly. you. Um, exactly. Especially if you're the new guy or the new gal 
that's going to be a really, really important part of your arsenal is having the advocacy of your manager. Because if you run into resistance doing the things you know are correct and your manager backs you up, you can um, you can have a lot more resiliency to, to that conflict or whatever when it comes up. So yeah. um, but we're actually going to uh, uh, kick things over to Chris here really quick to talk about what a scenario that many people might feel resonates with them and uh, is familiar about when this stuff breaks down. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Aaron. So we had a VP that I will call Joe. Uh, he joined our team and uh, he called us into a meeting and basically immediately implemented all brand new procedures without an explanation about projected outcomes or goals. The roadmap he showed us, it bore no resemblance whatsoever to the realistic needs or workflow of our org, the way it had been running. And he proceeded to structure us exactly the way that his previous team had been structured at Microsoft, which that we didn't work like Microsoft. So that didn't work for us. We went and complained bitterly and he ignored the team members' complaints. He ignored the pragmatic reasons why the new procedures wouldn't work. Um, his vision differed greatly from what the company had implemented as their vision. And it didn't take long before customers began complaining as our milestones fell off a cliff, our QC went off a cliff, lots of bugs were happening, we were slipping dates, there was no way to avoid it. We as an org went and complained loudly to upper management, to the C-level execs, and they basically told us, hey, we hired this guy for a reason, you need to do what he said. And so we just went back and put our heads down, tried to do our jobs. Eventually, org members, including myself, began leaving the company. Um, not long after I left, the entire org was eventually dissolved and the VP was fired. So pretty much a horror scenario from top to bottom. So that's a great example of a, a terrible experience, a terrible way that you see a senior leader join a team. One of the things I want to reflect, at no point... I can almost guarantee did Joe uh, step in and say, what I really want to do is destroy an org and make them have terrible customer relations and all this different stuff. His intentions were probably, I want to be an effective leader. And he thought he knew how to do that. And that's very, very common. Um, so anyway, I, I, I want to, uh, I guess, dive into some examples now of times where we've encountered what it's like to join teams at different scales and how did we, like, what scenarios did we see and how did we respond to that? Yeah. I mean, tools and techniques are made relevant, I think, in many respects by the environment you use them in. And so our focus today, we want to be on, okay, well, how do you actually do this? And uh, so we are going to leverage some anecdotes and stories just insofar as they illustrate why that tool made sense. But we are going to focus on how to how to fix this stuff, how to solve it, how to set it up correctly. Um, and when we've been talking about that, we th we're thinking about it in kind of like three phases, three sections, three chunks, three layers, whatever you want to call it. Um, and the first one was the one we talked about last time, which is sort of like understanding reality, what would, like the meta, basically wrapping your head around the meta, getting everybody on the same page about what's happening understanding yourself what's happening, filtering that through your own principles about the way teams should work and the way leaders should operate. So that's bucket one. Bucket two is sort of what I'll call the strategy, which is 
okay, now that you have the lay of the land, as it were, and you've got everybody aligned, what are the things that you're actually going to focus on? And what are the mechanisms by which you determine what those things are and how to prioritize them? So that's the strategy, bucket two. And bucket three is like, okay, well, the actual tools and techniques to get stuff done. So maybe maybe you say like, okay, well, the team doesn't have any predictability. Okay, well, what are some tools and techniques you actually employ, employ to get them there? Or maybe the team doesn't have trust. Okay, well, how do you get them to have trust? Like, how, how do you, how do you uh, employ technique to get them over that, that fence, over that hill? So those are the three buckets. And we're going to try to get as much into bucket three as we can today. Um, but we're going to actually start with a little bit of bucket two. Um, and I think that bucket two begins in the example where you start listing out, here are all the things we're seeing. And you're getting everyone mm-hmm. aligned on what you're seeing, mm-hmm. which is what we talked a lot about in the last podcast. So, you know, moving from that into, okay, well, what do we focus on and deciding what those things are? So let's talk about that. So I joined a team. It was a, a Nexus technology team, basically a lot of different parts of the org a lot of technology, a lot of engineering stuff that they were building was all coming together in this team. One of the first things I knew would be important in this team is their ability to focus uh, on whatever was considered highest priority at the time. And there were a set of other things that became important, like I wanted them to be able to be able to, to operate flexibly and all these other things. But the first thing I went in and was thinking about was this team doesn't seem to focus and as a result of their lack of focus, they're not actually collaborating well. That was the root thing that I was seeing. Uh, and the the way that that manifested um, was there was a bunch of different backlogs in Jira or whatever uh, that were being maintained by the product owner. Um, in standups, they'd actually canceled standups, basically. They were all just like, well, we don't really need to do that. And everybody seemed to be off on their own little individual project. And the consequence of that was that everything was, it was like they, they were trying to push 17 trains at the same time, like an inch at a time, instead of moving a train a foot and a half. Um, or if they could actually get better value out of it, like three feet or 10 feet or, you know, a mile, right? Um, and and so they were just constantly like pushing all these little things. and. When I saw those patterns, multiple backlogs, um, disbanding standups, right? Everybody just like, we'll just put updates in. Uh, A couple of the things that I did very rapidly uh, when I joined that team uh, after after observing those patterns was like, hey, I I said, I think we're not collaborating well. And they're like, well, you know, we collaborate informally. It's fine, but they had some reasons. It's like, no, I don't don't think we're collaborating well because it seems like we all have our own work stream. They're like, well, I mean, kind of, but you know, if when we need each other's help, we can ask and stuff like that. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't see that happening. Um, and they were like, and I, I basically said, hey, based on how this is going, if we're not hitting our goals inside of the next, I can't remember what I said, like a couple of weeks, basically, I want to make a change to the standup where we actually do a daily standup. We reinstitute a daily standup. And what I commit to you is I'm going to make sure that is short and to the point and focused on the things that we value as a team. Um, and what I'm trying to get out of that is that we're actually collaborating with each other around the most important work. And, and they were like, yeah, but I mean, we don't need that. It's fine. Okay, well, let's just get our stuff done. And uh, unsurprisingly, and actually very predictably based on the past of the team before I joined it, they absolutely did not meet their objectives. They did not collaborate well. Their informal method was actually not a method at all. And so I adjusted 
the stand-up. I basically reintroduced it as a thing. And I remember um, someone someone commented, because uh, the first stand-up lasted eight minutes. Um, and I was, I was pretty, I mean, I, I'm not always that strict with my facilitation, but I was pretty like, no, I need this to be crisp. Like, here are the highest value things. What are we doing on each of them? Um, because I would need the team to be able to engage and start thinking together about what's most important. Um, and so I just went down that list. It took eight minutes and someone, uh, next to me was like, that was a stand up," And I was like, yep. Uh, and I kept doing that over it's, and over. It's funny. Like I, when, when I hear you talk about that, I hear there was this really, uh, there was a flow problem fundamentally, yes. like drastic inefficiencies. And what's funny is I, you, you talk about this and you're like, oh, I needed to fix that. And I'm like, oh my God, the vast majority of teams actually just work the way that you saw them when you came in. Right. Um, but you were basically like, okay, you have too much whip or work in progress. You guys are working on like 10 different things at the same time. You don't even know what's the most important thing. Um, and when you do know what the most important thing is, is you're still likely to focus on your individual utilization and individual optimization and break it up into 10 things and go your 10 separate ways as opposed to swarming. So, so yeah, you had a flow problem on the team, like a severe flow yes. problem. They were basically optimizing for filling their individual buckets with work as opposed to like actually legitimately collaborating with each other with agility on top yes. priority things and getting them done. And, and what's then the next problem that emerged from that. So, okay, I figured out sort of how to get them to collaborate. They were getting better at that. That takes time, but they were getting better. And they, I'd figured out how to help them focus on the same thing. Uh, those two closely related immediately after emerged a problem, which is like, wait a minute, what's the most important thing to focus on? And I shifted my priority to start working with a product owner uh, around these sets of backlogs and, and again, narrowing that, like I already kind of talked about, we need one. And, he, and it was like, ah, well, I mean, but they all like, there's these different spaces. And I was like, that doesn't matter. We are, if we're a team, that's all like focusing on like these sets of things. Here's our mission, like these stuff that was pre-existed me. Um, we need to be doing, we need to be operating off of one backlog and understanding this is the most important thing we can do. It's okay sometimes if we do number 15, but product owner, I need that list um, because the team needs that list. They need to know, well, okay, if we can in stand-up be focusing on the most important thing, our backlog also needs to be focused on the most important thing, or actually we're just focusing on a random thing. And so a big push there, and that product owner was pretty severely overworked, was in getting the product owner to really engage and be regularly refreshing that backlog because to speak to the next problem that came after this was the flexibility um, because it was a chaotic space and priorities were changing all the time. How did you come to decide on what to focus on first? Mm -hmm. Like, how did, how did you get to that place? So you're, there's a lot of like interesting, like transformations you're doing on this team, um, very quickly, actually, after you showed up, um, I remember it, I was there, but like, I'm, I'm curious, like what made you decide to do thing a over thing B? Like, how did you get to that place? That's a fascinating question, actually, uh, because so much of it was intuition. I remember when I later like went back and wrote down what I did, I was really confused <laughs> At first, I was like, wait, what did I do? What was my intuition? But as I, when you were just saying that, I was like, it was cultural. There was a cultural problem on the team. They were operating like a bunch of individuals, not like a, a team. Um, and that was all, like, I really, what I was trying to fix was, I want you as a group of people to be working with each other well 
And I want you to realize that what you're doing is meaningful. Like you're not coming to work every day to just like solve fun engineering problems or like, oh, well, this is something I could optimize or whatever. I want it. I want you to be engaged in the meaning of the work that you're doing and supporting each other in that, because I believe that if you do that, more and more stuff will get done. Uh, more and more value will be delivered from this team. And so when I think about what I focused on, it was like, well, what was hindering that? And one thing was we're not collaborating. Okay. From a, I, it's really hard to force people to collaborate. Like you can do it paired programming, whatever, like sit next to each other and talk, you know, like it's informal, but I'll watch you like, that's not going to work. Um, you, you have to, you have to encourage it. You have to model it. So one thing was a lot of the conversations I was having was encouraging people to talk to each other, um, encouraging people to share problem spaces. Uh, but the, so that, that collaboration was getting in the way of us having a healthy culture for actually delivering value. And then you also had this focus problem, right? Even if we're collaborating, if we're all going in 17 different directions, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, it doesn't matter that we're collaborating really well because, again, we're pushing all the trains an inch uh, instead of actually moving something a meaningful distance. Um, and and so, it, it yeah, it's funny. I wasn't thinking about this when you asked the question. And as I pondered it, it was like it was culture. Yeah. Well, I think I feel like the nature of collaboration implies a singular objective of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like when, when you think about people we call collaborators, they're working together. They have an they have an aim. Right. Yeah. So I think that um, the idea of getting people to work together effectively on a fewer number of things is actually yes. the, it almost comes in the same basket. You know? Yeah. Like the new new product development game that we, we talk like it, they use the scrum example, right? The rugby team moving the ball down together all as yeah. a unit. Just one and ball. It's yeah. one ball. Exactly. Yeah. It's really important that it's just one ball. Yeah. There's like, there's seven balls. It's like, you're not really collaborating. Yeah, exactly. Now <laughs> it's a totally different game. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that, so that was where those came from. And then, I mean, it was, it's actually interesting. That first part was cultural around collaboration and ability to focus together. And then the immediate follow on was like, Hey, I think I've just started to, to create a team that will actually have a good culture around collaboration and focus. Now can we actually make sure the right stuff is coming down the pipe, right? From like a product perspective so that we're actually doing valuable stuff, not whatever happened to be floated to the top of a backlog that doesn't uh, actually, like that doesn't reflect reflect reality yeah. uh, of our customers and value. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because I think what I like about this story is it's the story of a leader coming into a team and really uh, in a very mature way, transforming them into, I think, a legitimately agile team and agile in the sense of their behaviors and interactions. Um, and uh, and that and again, that could be that that is the task of many leaders, I feel like. And again, at every every level equates to different scope at different organizations. And as I've got as I've grown in my career, I realize that like scope is a very misleading way to determine the seniority level or the effectiveness level of a leader, to be honest. Yeah. Like I, I, I've really seen that there is something to taking very mature leaders and, and reducing their scope on very high impact projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like, I, I just wanted to point out that I like I, what I love about this, this, 
the story you just told in the examples you just gave is it's very much within the context of a team. Like if you guys are out there looking for like how do I approach a team and start shifting behaviors, I think there's a lot to be drawn from that example. And I think my examples today are gonna be more about like the, the traditional kind of project where it's like it's implied that you've got multiple different teams, that there's sort of a higher level like group expectation. And like you start talking about things like dependencies and, you know, project road mapping and stakeholder uh, alignment and this kind of this kind of stuff. And so, you know, for me, how did I determine what to focus on? I think it was actually it was a combination of understanding what a everyone thought the problems were because when you talk to people about what they see the problems are it implies a certain kind of objective even if they're not able to clearly state that objective so for example i sat down with the qa team on this particular project and they were like hey uh we actually cannot test the client in chinese and the entire I knew at that time, but also what was heavily implied was that the one of the objectives of this very large project was to basically do a global simultaneous launch of this project. And so it sort of stands to reason that if it's not even possible for the QA team to look at the client in Chinese, they like they literally can't test the thing in Chinese, that's probably going to throw a wrench a major wrench in a simultaneous global deployment of this software, uh, where, by the way, uh, probably about 70% of the users will be Chinese. So um, it happened to be that most of the developers were American, but most of the people that were going to be using it were Chinese. So again, you can sort of see the incongruency there and go, okay, well, you know, even loosely understanding the goals at a basic level, tells you that we're already off the rails on this, right? So doing stuff like that actually helped me understand. And then there was like, okay, well, pretty much everybody at the company thinks that this thing is going really slow. Mm-hmm. And when somebody says something's going really slow, you have to be careful as a leader because that can mean any number of things. It could mean that I was just sold a, a bad bill of goods. It could mean that like I thought the project started three years ago, but it actually started last month. Like there's any number of things that could lead you to the conclusion that this is moving slow. It could be like, like unfortunately more often than not, the actual conclusion that's drawn is like, well, clearly this team sucks. And, uh, and I think that that's just terrible again, more often than not is actually not the case. Mm -hmm. Um, well, really that leads to if, mismanaged. if you do that, yeah, yeah. If you do that, if you take the assumption that the team is terrible, then you do like it's like Chris's example. Yeah. Um, like, what do I do as a senior leader if I come into a space and I believe everybody's terrible? Well, gosh, I tell them what to do. I reorganize the space. I make it look yeah. like something that's better. Yeah. You know, and I do that brute force because it's yeah. clear that they're terrible. Everybody knows it. Yeah. So you know, I'm I'm parsing through all this stuff trying to figure out what to focus on. And I felt that the number one prime directive for me as a leader on this particular project was to get predictability and not even necessarily predictability and like, hey, the team can deliver this much in this period of time, like velocity, if you will. Um, But to get an understanding of how much stuff we actually had to do in order to feasibly ship this thing and get everyone on the same page about what that entailed. Um, 
Why why did you start there? I started there because and th- and this is often the way my brain works from a strategic point of view. Um I you'll very often hear me say things like common language or on the mm. same page about what reality is and stuff like mm. that because I so often I've noticed that um you go to one leader one senior stakeholder and he's like, but they've been working on this for years and it's too slow. And then I go talk to a senior engineer and he's like, we've only been working on this for six months and we don't even have any of the staff that we need. And then I go talk to the project manager and he says, um, I, I have had a plan that says we're supposed to get all the work done in six months and everything seems to be there. But for some reason, the outputs just aren't matching up with the plan. And so it's like, everybody's got a different perspective and more often than not, When I look at the system, I go, we're not even speaking the same language. We don't have access to the same information. We don't mean the same thing. Certain words have different definitions depending on who you talk to. Like Mm -hmm. we like nobody like if you ask five different people throughout the organization, how many people are on this team? You get five different answers. It's literally duck, duck. Goose headcount. Like that's all you have to do is go in to the pit and count the number of people that are on the team and you can get that number. Yet somehow when you talk to five different people, you get five different answers because no one knows, like no one's actually done the inventory. And so that was the first thing when I went in, because I, I, when I went in, people were saying this thing is going to ship the beta product that's going to launch globally for this thing is going to ship in 90 days. And I just wasn't seeing, like, I know what it looks like when a project is a, like on the verge of shipping within, like, with, to me, that's on the verge of shipping, a large project is oh, in yeah. the ni- next 90 days. The, I, none of those pieces were there. So I was like, okay, well, clearly I just don't know where those pieces are. So can you show me where the backlog is? Well, we don't really have a backlog per se. I'm like, well, what do you mean? Well, we have a document that tells us what we need to do. Okay, where's the document? I go and look at the document. It's a screen by screen 50 page document where there's three paragraphs describing some of the behaviors that are present on each screen as best as our knowledge of reality is. And and everyone's working and translating off that doc to imply like the doc implies heavily the work that needs to be done. And the team translates that every single sprint to try to figure out what that what is it they're supposed to be doing. And then there was also a Gantt chart, a project plan, which was basically from getting all of the leads of each discipline. So the lead engineer, the lead artist, et cetera, sitting in a room and going, okay, how many hours of art is there on this? Uh, probably about 15 hours. Cool. How many hours of engineering is there on this? Uh, I think about 25. Okay, cool. Then add them all up per screen mm. and then mm. create a project plan out of that, which as you can imagine was completely wrong completely off. And by the way, no fault of any of the individuals involved. It was just that the, the recipe for getting the right state of the union was not there. And then on top of that, even harder was the pressure within the team was to to produce a certain answer. So it wasn't even like being true was actually less important being like, uh, being, uh, accurate was less important than making sure the stakeholders didn't get really pissed because talk in, to, talk, yeah, dive, dive more into that. Yeah. That one, man, we see that, that like, yeah, expect is it is, it's a different version of like the boss expectation misalignment for question, sure. It, you know? it was, we were already at a point where, um, 
the the stakeholders of the project had viewed that they had let so much line out, so much proverbial line out for this team to figure itself out and to get right and get on track that the idea of any further delays was almost just totally unpalatable, like literally mm. instant vomit reflex from the stakeholders. So this actually created a culture where there was not openness to uh, an alternative narrative. And so they were playing into each other culturally. You'd go into the stakeholder reviews and it was like, let's talk about how great everything is going. And let's talk about how we totally got this and we're on track and things are going pretty well. And that, that same conversation happened every two weeks during the stakeholder reviews. And it never was any more truthful. Uh, or I, 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 Sorry, truthful is the wrong word. Uh, accurate. Because it, 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 truthful implies uh, dishonesty. But it, it was never any more accurate. And again, I was, my view of the world was very much like, this is insane. Like none mm -hmm. of this, this is so far off. Like, I don't know how long this thing's going to take, but I know I would be willing to bet my entire life savings it will not ship in 90 days. Like, the, the emperor has no clothes. For sure. And so, again, I realized that I could not broach that conversation unless I had an alternative narrative that could be verified with facts. Mm -hmm. So the, in order to solve that problem, the stakeholder misalignment and, and everyone not sharing a common view, a single source of truth if you will, was having to actually create a source of truth for the first time that did not exist. And so that's where I had to dig into the mechanics. What are the project plans? How are people estimating? And, and, and bring in a bunch of my knowledge and expertise about how accurate estimations actually come to be. And unfortunately, though, on the size and magnitude of this project, there were literally thousands of items that were discovered, thousands of items that were undiscovered. And I needed to apply a technique where I could get a somewhat reliable understanding of how much scope there was, knowing that there would be multiple thousands of items. And so I did two things. I did it in an affinity estimation exercise where I literally got all 40 people on the team together into a room with like very, very like down to the like five minutes now we're doing this, five minutes now like facilitated exercise. Mm -hmm. for like four or five hours where we basically uh, did, uh, we estimated every single item on the backlog purely based on size, not based on time. So it was like we anchored, okay, right. here are three items in small, three items in medium, three items in large, three items in extra large. And then we basically just kept building up each bucket. And then we would, after we built like with 50 cards, we would come back and reflect, okay, now there's, you know, there's, what, whatever, 15 cards in each bucket, move a, a couple cards around based on what you see, like looking at everything relatively. Like, are there any smalls in there that should be mediums? And then basically as we did that recalibration every single time, I would dump in more cards and we'd have to do more cards faster and faster and faster. <laughs> and so, you know, as you can imagine, this implies a pretty acute knowledge of how like the human brain works around relative estimations. Ben and I teach this stuff. So, but th this is uh, the only way I could think of to get mm -hmm. through that big of a backlog in that period of time. And it still took six hours. And by the way, that was after a multi-day workshop where I literally broke down into large scale project sections on a rolly whiteboard that was like five feet wide. So there's like eight of these rolly whiteboards in there where people were sticking, I was like, anything you can think that needs to be done, no matter how big or how small, 
you make a card for it and you put it up there. And I brought the team in in groups of 10 for an hour each for two days straight to just populate all of the things that need to be done. And I would say about 75% of that backlog, if you will, was undiscovered, like was not actually mm -hmm. documented anywhere. And so like, again, what are all the things? And I knew it was wrong. And this is, this was actually the very uncomfortable thing. It's like, you know, right. that you're, you're like 50% oh, yeah. accurate this whole time, yeah, maybe, yeah. but it's that you're trying to create through anchors and, in, and let that uncertainty in. And again, what's also hard about letting that uncertainty in is people, leaders that are already invested in the existing plan in that project are participating in your exercises mm -hmm. there. And in their minds, they already know what needs to be done. So you're actually taking the whole team five steps back, which creates a lot of frustration. Right. That, and that, like that, so common to see it comes from that I know what needs to be done mentality that leaders take on so yeah. often when they join teams. Yeah. We don't have, it's when you try to get into a, an exercise like this, that pushback is so often like, why do we need to do that? I already know what needs to be done. I just need to tell everybody what it is. We don't need to, I don't need to get all this from the team. I don't need to. And what's noteworthy is my guess is even while that was going on and things that they didn't know about were coming up, it was not a simple process to get past their denial mechanisms no. around this at all. No, um, Like it, it takes time. Be, and, and I'll be honest, it requires humility yeah. uh, for someone to be able to go like, shoot, I and didn't this, know everything this, that was involved. And unfortunately, again, because my techniques and my thought process were not shared by several of the leaders on the team, they, and, and we could not rectify like, why this needs to be done, why this is important. Like we talked about it a lot, but we could not rectify it. Uh, they actually viewed me in an adversarial way. Mm -hmm. Na naturally, it was almost like we had a plan. We had a way that we were doing this. And then Aaron comes in and now all of a sudden it's like, blah. And it's, it's, so we're going to do all this work for what, basically? I mean, I know it's going to ship in 90 days. Like, why are we spending all this time on planning? And, 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 and unfortunately, when I did finally create the new plan, if you will, or the new scope and estimation framework, it was almost like you're doing this specifically to attack my plan. Yeah. Like it's not, you're not trying to reach a source of truth. You're, you're, you're now you're compromising my leadership and my plan and my Yes. Like my view of the world. And, and unfortunately, I, I tried to rectify that, but I, I felt that I didn't know. I only had one choice, which was to keep driving towards a source of truth. And actually, it's funny now that I'm recounting this, it really was about getting a source of truth. And I can't emphasize enough that getting a single source of truth of reality and getting leadership and the team aligned around what that is and stakeholders aligned around what that is, is absolutely critical on a big project. And, and I very rarely see this done effectively. And so when I finally got all multi-thousand of these things estimated, I created a roadmap. I, I loosely gathered the team's velocity. There was actually like five different cross-functional teams working on this project. I, I figured out about because I, I brought in old stories when we did right. the estimation. Yeah. I brought in old stories or great, old great thing to do in this situation. Old chunks that they had already done, and that's actually how we started the seeds. Yep. So, so when we are all talking about small, medium, large, we had a general idea of of uh, what that meant. But unfortunately, also the teams didn't collaborate well um, across team at the time, so there was not sameness 
in, but, but going through the exercise actually brought them together and got them okay. And they, they had to talk a lot about something that the other team did that I didn't work on. They had to share notes a lot to get an understanding of what was small and what was large. But that actually, what that did was that gave me a consistent, if I, if I labeled every large as an eight, uh, as a, as an eight point thing. And I knew that on average, one of the teams could consume 20 points a sprint. I could start to sort of figure out a loose velocity of how much, how many points they could consume in a given period of time. So that mm-hmm. allowed me to go, okay, I know this isn't super accurate. And here's what I did. So once I had my t-shirt sizes and then I had my points and then I had my loose velocities, I was able to go, okay, it's about this much time purely based on the numbers to consume all this work, consume all this stuff. And then I was like, okay, well, I need to include how much stuff we missed, which this is the first time we've ever done a holistic view. So we missed a ton guaranteed on top of that. Our velocity is probably shit. Like right now, like I, like I, I, it's directionally accurate based on today, but like, there's no way that that's like a historical velocity that's averaged out over 10 sprints or whatever. Like I didn't have a reliable and then like, and on top of that, we don't have alignment on like most of the way that we work right now. So all of those things together tell me that like, this is super wrong. Like whatever this is, is super wrong. And so basically I was like, okay, I created a little chart that I've seen Mike Cohn use where it's like, how familiar is the team with the tools and technology on a scale of one to 100? And how familiar is the team with the way that they work and each other on a scale from one to 100? And if it's low, you add on either axis, you add 50% to the mm-hmm. total of the project. If it's high, then you can just take the number that you have. And so basically because it was low on both, I doubled. <laughs> I doubled the time. And it was already like eight to 12 months, just the raw. And so I doubled it and added like another year on and everyone freaked out, right? As you can imagine. Like, cause the way went from 90 days to like end of next year. It's like spring of year one so, you to know, end of next year. It's it's funny when when you're saying this, I'm like looking like what okay, so what was going on before? We talked about um managing the stakeholder expectations that were they didn't want to let any more rope out, right? And there's there's something in there that again like the cultural root of this is are we are we interested in reality? Yes. Are we interested yeah. in accuracy? And you walked into a place where between the layers of hierarchy that existed, there was an incentivized disinterest in honestly looking at the reality of the situation. And again, I think it's because it was a factor to your point of how much pain that there was and the diff between those two things. And actually I see this a lot uh, culturally at companies where it's like the truth, whatever you want to call that, is so far away from how I currently view the world, that for me to acknowledge the truth is is a catastrophic it's an existential scenario. Crisis. It's like, oh God, what are we gonna do? Like, if you're really, tr- <laughs> if what you're saying is true, Aaron, and we're really not gonna ship to, like literally I just had a meeting with the president of the company and I told them we were gonna ship this in 90 days. And now you're telling me the, like 18 months from now, like, I'm going to look like a fool. And so it's like, 
no matter how much I want to know the truth, like the amount of pain and like, and like bitterness I have to chew on and swallow there to get to where you're saying is the truth is immense. And, Mm -hmm. and, and so, and it's interesting that ended up my, my thesis, my theory was that if we showed everyone a single source of truth, and this was a naivete and ignorance on my part at the time, people would just be like, well, you know, that really sucks, but you've done the math, Aaron. How can we argue with that? And they'd get on board. That didn't happen. Actually, what happened was an instant systematic rejection of my very thorough and well-founded data. And I was shocked. And I remember feeling very hopeless after that as a new leader on that team and going like, oh my God, how am I ever going to get us to a place? Like even I at that moment felt like maybe I should just get on board with the hopium. Maybe I should just get on board with the, uh, the three month plan, the illusion. Yeah. And just play my part in that and let it play itself out. And this is where a different framework came into play, which the, the immediate next question was like, okay, well, how do we make it palatable for the stakeholders? And the way we did this was we're like, okay, if we're showing them the results of our work and the way we see the world and that is not palatable, then one way we can do this is show, expose the mathematical equation to them, the proverbial mathematical equation. What if we showed them what are the problems on the team right now? What are the assumptions that we're making about what's important and what challenges we have? Um, what if we expose the choices that we've made about what to prioritize and what's important? And we actually, instead of just showing them, here's what you're going to get in here and it's going to be in six months. If we actually showed them the mental math we went through to get to that so that they could poke holes in that every step of the way. And if they couldn't poke holes in it, here's the real key thing. If they couldn't poke holes in it, if they were like, wow, I see how you did the math. That's good math then two things happen. One is that they actually trust us as leaders Mm -hmm. because they're like, oh, you guys are, you know what you're doing. You're thinking through this correctly. And then the second thing is, is they're now invested in the solution. If, if they go through the mental math and they're like, oh, well, yeah, that's the same conclusion I would draw as well. Now, all of a sudden you've created instant free alignment through that. Right. And this was something I took this framework that what I call the stakeholder framework of, um, there's actually an acronym around it. I think I can't remember. It's like problems, assumptions, decisions, outcomes, basically, um, you expose your mental math to your stakeholders in a situation where there's a lot of frustration, pain, and misalignment to get everyone on the same page, bring everyone on the mental journey that you went on so that they must draw the same conclusion that you drew. And that's when, you know, you're in a better place. And that actually helped rebuild trust in the process. Yeah. Because their first reaction was, if I thought this thing was going to be in 90 days and I believed that, and now you're telling me it's going to be a year and a half, the only conclusion I can draw is that I cannot trust you. Right. And, I, and that's actually not unreasonable. Yeah. Um, and so, so, that, so, again, leader coming into new team, again, keep in mind that it's not just about solving the problems on the team or, or, or transforming the team. It's also about diffing that against the the way that the world was viewed when you started, because that actually honestly ends up being much harder and much more personal. And people yeah. are invested in the old world. You know what I mean? And it's not as simple as you just... Well, and that's, that's the thing. Like one of the advantages of being a new person yeah. is you're not deeply invested in all the biases yeah. that everybody else have has, has fully ingested yeah. over their time on the project. And you're trying to 
it's funny how much it comes back to expectations and alignment, right? Like you're you're coming in and, and what you described was I come in and they say they're shipping in 90 days, but that people think there are some issues, right? That was one of the reasons you were brought in. We think that there might be issues here. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, yep, I do see issues. This doesn't seem like it's reasonable. Okay, what's going on? And then you see this sort of, wait, there is no source of truth. Everything you've created with, the, in some cases, the best of intentions and the, the best techniques that you perhaps knew how, all of that is just like, it's like a, you know, it's, it's, it's a falsehood. It's a masquerade. It's just a, it's a, the rug that covers up all of the reality. You know, it's, um, it's funny. And to add to that thing you just said, because I think that that was a big light bulb for me. And I think that that was solidified. So we met a guy uh, as Troy McGinnis is his name, right? I always, I feel like I always butcher his last name. So Troy McGinnis is a, a, a kind of a somewhat of a statistical genius in the project management space. And he uh, applies something called the Monte Carlo method that you can take a look at on your own time. I won't get into it, which is uh, basically um, more or less based on the idea, which is pretty well founded of um, statistics leading to highly accurate predictions of outcomes. And, um, we asked him, when does this model break down? Because we're all a little skeptical of it. Because to be frank, on the surface, it seems a little too good to be true. Um, mm-hmm. And he was like, oh, that's easy. He's like, the number one reason this model breaks. He's like, and it does work, the model. He's like, the number one reason it breaks, though, is because people couldn't agree on the start date of the project. Mm-hmm. And when I heard that, I was just like mind blown. Because I don't think I've ever worked on a big project ever where people agreed on when the project actually started. Like when I was working on this project I was referring to earlier, I would regularly hear people water cooler conversationing in the hall being like, well, haven't they been working on that thing for like five years now? And I remember it. I'm like, well, no matter how far back you go, it hasn't been five years. <laughs> and honestly, if you want to be scrutinous about it, like really we just got actually started with a real backlog, a real fully staffed team, a real plan probably about four months ago. And the rest of the time we were just spinning on this, yeah, not really getting anywhere. And I'm like, that's fascinating. So th- th- that, that I feel like really goes to your point about, do we actually understand where we're at? Yeah. You know what I mean? And that, and that step from, um, okay, I think something's wrong okay, we've got a rug covering like that. We've just swept every, every bit of reality under. And now we all, we all feel better when we go home at night, when we pretend that the rug is actually reality and not the giant gaping hole underneath it. Uh, heaven forbid we actually three months from now need to step on it. Um, and we, we fall through our assumptions like crazy. Um, and, and that, and then that led to, wait a minute, there is investment from stakeholders and leaders in maintaining this rug, Mm -hmm. like strong investment. And you sort of have like this cascade of problems that you, your new leader showing up, large project, multi-team effort. um, And it's sort of every time you're like, okay, wait, maybe I can fix that. And then you realize like, well, even if I fix that, it's blocked by this next thing. And one of the things I, I would encourage someone hearing this, regardless of whether you're on a small team or a large team, keep pulling that thread maintain your humility and continue to observe. Um, because it, I'm not saying it ever ends, 
but you will pull out a lot of these major things, whether they're cultural or product or process related, you will pull out these things and now you can start going, okay, which of these do I wanna actually work on, right? For you, the, the thing you were most focused on was can I get people to agree on reality? Yeah. Can I can I create a shared picture of reality and the people and the processes and the things that are obstacles that can I, you know, uh, convince or somehow you know take care of so that we're all we all see the same thing. Yeah. And when I joined when I in the in the scenario I gave like that initial focus was can we collaborate and focus on the right value? Yeah. Right. Because that that was what was, you know, that was the thing I was seeing. Real quick question, just for, for both of you. Because I know there are listeners who, like me, will be curious. Just in a super brief nutshell, Aaron, what was the outcome? Did it take a year and a half? And Ben, what happened when you tried to refocus the team? Just super quickly, Mm -hmm. what happened? Yeah, it did. uh, I think we launched the beta for that product around October, November of the following year. So, so it was, with, so you, you, it was within a couple months were, of give or take of the tar, the original target. So you were pretty stuff. accurate. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Cool. So good. So your math was was accurate, and people bought into reality once they saw that how you got you came up with your numbers and and it worked out. So excellent, Ben. What about you? What happened with your team? They did get better uh, at collaborating, and it caused a bunch of shifts in the team. Um, there. Over the long term, it was actually we sh- we shifted some some leaders around. Um, we got the product owner more deeply engaged, um, and we, it was funny. We we managed to actually identify and solve some of the biggest problems that we were facing, and the team went from being sort of like it's this sort of dysfunctional team that we can't get value out of into hey. And for many, it was a very difficult to understand team. For many people, it was like, I don't really know what they do, but it seems like they solve the right things most of the time. Um, and so the the over the course of, shoot, I was probably there less than a year, maybe a year. Um, over the course of my year or so, let's say, on that team, um, by the time I left, they were, they owned their process. The culture was good. They, they knew what their mission was. They were focused on the right things and they had leadership in place that like when I stepped away, I, I, I don't know if I've ever felt that good stepping away from a team that like the people that are still here, um, the leaders that are still here can like take this and drive it forward. And, and this team is considered yeah. um, valuable to the organization. Yeah. Excellent. No, that's really great that we see two boots on the ground examples of applying all of this in in reality and two super positive outcomes that came from it i that is immensely enjoyable to hear those stories from both of you so yeah yeah there's there's one there's one quick thing i wanted to call out and this ties into what we talked about in part one just just a smidge uh and that is one time i showed up to a team and this maybe others have had this experience there was a set of things a lot of stuff that i was expected to do it was a fairly large team, multi-projects at the same time, a lot, a lot of different things in flight. And um, they, I basically showed up and they were, and I asked like, okay, I was very new to the space. What is it that I'm supposed to do here? And they told me a bunch of stuff. And I realized within, I think, a week that if I did all the things that they expected the person in my role to do, I would not actually be able to spend any time understanding the system, observing, listening, and 
figuring out what wasn't going well or what was going and, well. And make things better. Exactly. Um, and, and so one thing I would encourage to any new leader out there who shows up to a space, ask those questions. What is it that you expect me to do? Go ahead and do it first. Like make sure you do it because there's reasons why those things exist, but also be paying attention. Hey, does this give me the time I need to really understand what's going on? And if you don't have that time, you need to figure out what to put down because to the point that the problem that Aaron ran into, if you don't understand reality, you can't help anybody else understand it either. Yeah. If you And I think I think what's important there too is there's there is a real element of political capital there, right? Yeah. If your manager doesn't understand or your team doesn't understand or the other leaders on your team don't understand what you're doing, why you approach it that way, the way you're mm-hmm. going about things, you are burning capital every single day that you go on that alternative course to the way that they see the world. So the ultimate, the penultimate value is to get them on the same page. So you're gaining political capital while you do all this stuff. But if that's not possible, you just have to understand that you need to work quickly, honestly. And yes. and, and that's that's a really challenging situation to be in. It's very stressful um, to follow your own convictions. Um, one of the things that's helpful as a framework to use with your manager, for example, is if they're like, well, you need to do these five things and just do these five things and then you'll and then I give you my seal of approval. And you look at those five things and you're like, well, none of those things add value. None of those things are actually going to make the team better. Then you need to help work with your manager to get down to the root of what it is that they actually want to get out of the tactical land. Okay, great. You want me to manage the spreadsheet, but like what, what value are you trying to get out of it? Like what outcome do you want manager? And if you can get down to that layer with them and align on that, now all of a sudden they're going to be way more comfortable with alternative solutions if you demonstrate that they're going to hit the value better. So work through that, like really invest into that and work through that. And um, because that's going to open up the options that you have in the way that you solve the problem. I really do want to be empathetic to the situation a lot of new leaders are in. You know, like even the story Chris told, and I have stories like that too, is like one of the first questions that popped up in my mind is like, oh, I wonder, did you call him Joe? You called him Joe? Was that right? Sure. Sure. We'll call him Joe. Um, Yeah. It was like, I wonder what Jim's managers told him he was responsible for. That'd be an interesting conversation to be the fly on the wall in. It's like, what was he told his mandate was when he came in the door? Maybe that was like some significant chunk of the reason he like freaked out and went all command and control, you know? Um, Who knows? And so this is such an important piece to the puzzle, you know, is like really managing expectations while you're going out and doing this stuff. And I think one of the hallmarks of a mature leader is being able to do that effectively. So, man, I'm trying to figure out if I want, there's, there's one other little thing I want to call out about showing up to a new team. Um, Let's just say it, uh, how you relate to the other leaders that are on that team. Most of the time, you're not the solo leader. Um, And so there are other people that are there. They've been there before you. You have potentially heard a lot about them. Um, And this comes back to what we said in part one. um, Withhold judgment uh, until you see them acting in the space. Um, Even if everything looks dysfunctional, everything looks broken, try to understand what's going on and try to see it from their lens. Because to the point of like what Aaron was just talking about, political capital and your ability to drive change, if you can bring 
Just like bringing your manager or your boss along on the journey helps you get it done. If you can bring those leaders around you with you on that journey, um, it's going to make it like a thousand times easier. And so it's worth investing the time. What are your expectations? How do, why do you think I'm here? Uh, you know, what, what is it that you want from me? And, and figuring out like, what is it? And, and then talking to them, what do I want from you? What am I, what are my expectations? Um, even if you're, you end up in a completely adversarial position like Aaron ended up in, where he was trying to sort of cr- create a source of truth and help people realize what reality was. And his, uh, a fellow leader or leaders were actively opposed to that through those conversations, you learn that, and it's good information to have. It's really good information to have because it allows you to navigate that space um, with the understanding of the of the of the circumstance of the leadership scenario. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that would be that would be something else. Thanks again for joining us uh, for another episode of the Valarin Perspective. We hope that uh, the last couple of episodes help leaders who are newly approaching teams figure out how to get the lay of the land and strategize on what to focus on. And if you're not a leader, we hope you enjoyed kind of seeing things from this perspective. And uh, if you see this or you become a leader yourself, maybe you can uh, bring some of that knowledge and wisdom into your space. So we'll see you next time for another topic and another day. Thanks for listening to the Valarin Perspective. Please send us your thoughts at perspectives at valarinconsulting.com. V-A-L-A-R-I-N consulting.com. And make sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Valarin Inc.